morning. It's good to see each of you. I've been really strengthened and encouraged in the time we've already spent together this morning. I'm really grateful to Ben and Aaron for the way they have uh, introduced our passage already. I'm going to ask you now to turn there again, Psalm 13. Let's read these words again, prepare to look at it more fully. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's consider these words as we go to the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask that you might work in our hearts this morning. Uh, we, We ask you to give us understanding as we look into your word. And we especially ask that you would open our eyes, give us eyes to see the greatness of your work in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you fill me with your Spirit to proclaim your Word? Would you fill all of us with your Spirit to receive your Word? Would you equip us to walk by faith in obedience to your Word? We pray it only in the name of our Savior, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. So David begins this psalm with a few questions that I think resonate pretty deeply with all of us, at least if you are old enough to experience some of the difficulties and heartaches of living in a broken and sinful world. Uh, Ben mentioned earlier, this past year has had its share of difficulties. You may have asked numerous times, how long will this pandemic continue? How long will we have to wear masks? How long until life gets back to normal? Well, we hope sometime in the next few months the vaccines will be distributed widely enough and we hope they will have the desired effect And we hope families and businesses and churches will be able to function more normally without the restrictions that we've had to deal with uh, throughout most of 2020. But we have to ask ourselves, then what? Uh, When the pandemic is over, we will still live in a fallen world, won't we? There will be another crisis that will fill the news and very likely trouble your heart. Another struggle will threaten you and your family and your security and your happiness. 
I think we realize, at least we should realize, a cure for COVID is not a cure for the deep-seated, deep-rooted problems of the human race. We believe that God can fix what is wrong with the world, but the question is, why is it taking so long? So maybe you ask questions like these. How long will my loved one continue down a path of futility and unbelief and rebellion against God? How long will the nations of this world walk in darkness and reject the only Savior who can give them light and truth and hope? How long will wicked, deceitful men continue to spread lies and misinformation that lead people astray? How long will injustice and perversion prevail in our society? How long will the church, the body of Jesus Christ, suffer from schism and carnality and immaturity and foolishness and false teaching? How long will I struggle with personal sins that rob me of my joy and maybe even make me question my relationship with God? If you're wrestling with these kinds of questions, it's one reason we love the Psalms so much. They express the feelings we experience when we look at the world and we say, this isn't going right. This isn't even making sense. As we read the message of different psalms like Psalm 13, we get help how to put our heads on straight. These words of David written some 3,000 years ago teach us how to think about the world by teaching us how to think about God. Now there's a right way and a wrong way to go about this. The wrong way is to look for an easy answer. A catchy phrase, a band-aid solution that pulls a verse out of context and says, yeah, I'm going to use that for my personal pep talk. The right way is to consider from all of Scripture, from the storyline of God's redemptive work for his people, how he acts to answer and fulfill David's prayer. So that's where we're headed this morning. We need to begin by looking at this text I think it's fairly easy for us to see three parts, three stages in this psalm. Each stage is two verses long. In verses 1 and 2, David expresses himself in terms of a lament. He expresses confusion and sorrow and uncertainty, and he gives us a window into what's happening inside his soul. We're not told much of anything about the specific circumstances he's going through. Instead, it's this is how I feel. And that sets the stage for verses 3 and 4, where he makes his request for help. He is knocking on heaven's door saying, God, I need you to do this for me. And then that will lead us to verses 5 and 6, where he expresses his confidence in God's mercy. He turns a corner and says, here's what I know about God. Here's where I can take my stand. And we'll look at these stages in their proper order and see how David finally gets to this place at the end. So here is David's lament, 
first two verses. Here are the questions David wants to bring to God. Here is where his, his fears and his troubled emotions are exposed. And there are at least three elements here. The, one is the feeling of God's absence. You can tell David feels that God has abandoned him. He asks, how long are you going to forget me? Is this ever going to change? I've been calling out for a long time now and there's no answer. How long is this going to continue? I can't see you. I can't experience the nearness of your presence. You're hiding yourself from me and I don't understand. And that leads us into the second element of this lament. Beginning in verse 2. That's this sense, there's this sense of emotional turmoil where he's, he's trying to figure out what's going on. How long must I take counsel in my soul? What's he saying there? Well, I'm asking myself questions. I'm trying to find out where the problem is and I'm getting nowhere. God has deserted me, so my only companions are my questions and my sorrows. And there's another element that aggravates the situation. It makes it worse. It appears that David's enemy is being exalted over him. There's a sense of injustice here. Because God is not acting to make his presence and power visible in my life, my enemy is winning and I'm losing. Now we understand David is not upset because... His team didn't win the NBA championship or he lost a game with Settlers of Catan to his wife. David is the anointed king. He's chosen by God to rule his covenant people. If he dies, his enemies will take over and God's kingdom on earth will be defeated. Righteousness will lose. Evil will triumph. That's why David is so worked up. He cannot see how to reconcile God's promises about his kingdom with what is happening in his life and what's happening in the world around him. Now, sometimes we get bent out of shape because we we just don't get what we want. We think we have identified something that must be God's will, and we don't understand why God's not doing it. But there are some struggles in the Christian life that go deeper than that, aren't there? Our king has told us the gates of Hades will not prevail against his church. But much of the time, it doesn't seem as if if his church is prevailing over the forces of hell. What are we supposed to do? Well, there's something that David does very clearly here. He starts to call and cry out for God's help. I shouldn't say he starts crying out. Apparently, he's been asking for some time. He says, where are you, God? And there's no answer. The heavens are shut. The signs of God's presence are missing. The voice of God is silent. Well, verses 3 and 4 show us that the perceived absence of God is not a reason to give up calling on him. It is a reason to cry out that much more. You can hear the urgency in David's voice. He makes his request in multiple ways. Number one, he's asking for God to act in response to his prayer. The word consider at the beginning of verse 3. It's probably not the best translation here as if David is asking God to think about it for a while. 
Other translations use the word look. And in fact, there is no word and between look and answer. It's just look, answer me, O Yahweh my God. You can hear David is desperate. Now what he's asking for, the most specific thing we can see that he's asking for is that God would deliver him from death. When he says, light up my eyes, the idea is his eyes are going dark. He's about to pass out and never wake up. And then verse 4 expands on that. It's the same idea he mentioned back in verse 2. What happens if God doesn't act? What are the consequences if David dies? Well, the enemy will say, I won. David can see in his mind's eye all these horrific possibilities. The foes of the kingdom are celebrating, giving high fives. Yeah, David's dead. We can pervert justice. We can oppress the poor. We can rule on high. No one's going to stop us. That's why David is desperate. It's why David is crying out the way that he does. And his desperate plea is there in part to show us what faith looks like in darkness. What does faith look like in darkness? Sometimes we might miss this. We might think true faith is only what we see in verses 5 and 6, where David seems to reach this point of joyful, calm confidence in the Lord. But even before we get there, here, in the first part of the psalm, is an example and an encouragement for your faith. Over and over again, the Bible gives us pictures of the faith of God's people who are crying out in grief and heartache and fear and uncertainty and desperation. I'd like to give a couple of examples. Favorite examples of mine from Scripture. First from the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 55, you can turn there if you like. In fact, I'd invite you to do so. And I stated the wrong chapter. It's, It's chapter 63. Isaiah 63. In this chapter, Isaiah is looking back on the deliverance that God had worked for his people in the past. And he is lamenting how that is so different from what he sees in the present and what he knows is about to happen because of the people's sin. So in verse 15, he prays and says, look down from heaven and see. The word look is the same word that we had look in Psalm 13. Look down from heaven and see. From your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. You see what he's saying. God, you're not answering us. You're not showing us your compassion. In verse 16, he claims God as our father. Even if our ancestors, Jacob, Israel, Abraham, even though they may not know who we are, God, you're the one who gave birth to us. he asks in verse 17, O Lord, why 
Do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? It almost sounds like he's blaming God for their sin. We know that God is not to blame, but it is this striking, poignant way of saying that until God acts to soften their hearts, they will never be rescued from their own hardness. And he's asking, why haven't you done that? We're your people. We belong to you. If we move down to chapter 64, picking up in verse 6, we see Isaiah speaking for the remnant as a representative of the remnant who is, they are lamenting over their sins. He says, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us. And you have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Again, he appeals to God as their father, as their maker, as the one that they belong to. Now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. There's the word again. Look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Here's the question he asks. Will you restrain yourselves, yourself at these things, O Lord? Doesn't this matter to you? Are you going to stay quiet? Not do anything about it? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? I skipped over the first few verses of chapter 64. That actually forms the middle of the passage. That's the point where he, where Isaiah expresses this heartfelt longing. Here's what he knows it will take to make things right. Chapter 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. God, would you... Tear the heavens like a curtain and show yourself and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence like fire when it kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. God, we need you to show up and make yourself known. True faith is not a glib, chipper attitude that pastes on a smile and says, well, we know everything's going to be okay. It's all going to be good. Faith grieves over the apparent absence of God and it acts in desperation to cry out for God to work. And there's another example I want to give you from the Gospel of Luke. Luke 18 Starting in verse 35, as he drew near to Jericho, that's Jesus, drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. 
they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And we can just see, we can just imagine what's going on in this man's mind. Jesus of Nazareth. I've heard of him. He does all kinds of miraculous signs that show he's from God. I believe he's the true king of Israel. This is my chance. This might be my only chance. He can give me my sight. So he starts yelling, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people in front of him don't really think this is appropriate. Be quiet. You're you're embarrassing us. You're, You're making a scene. He doesn't care about that. That doesn't matter. The end of verse uh, 39 says he cried out all the more. He, he, he started yelling louder. Jesus, son of David, hey, have mercy on me over here. He's driven by the reality that he knows there is no one can help him except this man, Jesus. And Jesus answers him and commends him for his faith. There may be someone here today, perhaps someone watching on the internet this morning. Maybe you are wondering if you have enough faith for God to hear you. Maybe you feel like your faith is just too weak. Maybe you say, I have all these doubts. I don't know if I can ever get to the place where David says, my heart will rejoice in your salvation. Well, we're going to get to verses 5 and 6 in just a minute, but the pathway to verse 5 goes through verses 3 and 4. The birthplace of faith is the realization of your need. The birthplace of faith is the realization of of your need. Here's what you might need to do. Look at yourself in the mirror. See the way the circumstances of your life And the enemy of your soul and the weakness of your flesh and the strength of your sins have defeated you and say to yourself, there is no other place that I can turn except God. That's the perspective that David takes in this psalm and it leads him to where he can say, I have trusted in your steadfast love. So notice where David places his faith. It's not in the power of positive thinking. It's not in his own faith. His faith is placed first upon God's character. I have trusted in your steadfast love. That's the word chesed. It's this rich Hebrew word used extensively in the Psalms and throughout the Old Testament. It's the idea of God's loyalty to those upon whom he has set his love. His love and his faithfulness are part of his very nature. God can no more deny his commitment to his covenant servant than he can deny himself. And that commitment shows itself in his saving deeds. When David says he will rejoice in God's salvation, it's not a vague, salvation is not a vague abstract concept. It is the visible, tangible display of God's power to save his servant from death and disgrace. The fear was, God's not going to come through for me. The reality is, God has done well to me. It's kind of a literal rendering of the dealing bountifully. And all this prompts a response 
I have trusted. My heart shall rejoice. I will sing to the Lord. If the depth of your need is the seed or the birthplace of faith, then rejoicing and singing is faith's flower. When we look upon the faithful, loving character of God and see the, might, the marvel of his mighty salvation, we start to sing along with the saints in Revelation 15. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. David has been waiting and longing and asking for God's righteous acts to be revealed. And he's now expressing his confidence that God will hear him and will deliver him. So now let's ask the question that I started to introduce almost at the beginning of the sermon. Based on what we know from all of Scripture, the storyline of God's kingdom centered upon the throne of David. How did God answer David's prayer? All throughout the Psalms, including Psalm 13, we see David clinging to God's promises, right? Lord, deliver me from those who hate me. Deliver me from death. Establish the throne of your servant. How were those promises fulfilled? Well, if you remember the story of David from First and Second Samuel, Ben led us through that story uh, not so long ago. You know that God did deliver David from death and from his enemies over and over again many, many times. He was delivered from Saul. He was seated on the throne of Israel. He was rescued from the treachery of his own son Absalom and those who conspired with him. He reigned for a total of 40 years, and at the end of his long life, he passed his throne on to his son Solomon. And God also blessed Solomon, prospered his reign for many years. But you very likely know the story. In, his, in Solomon's later years, his heart turned away from following the Lord. He went after the gods of the nations around him, which set a trajectory that most of the kings of Israel and Judah would follow after him. Eventually, the nation became so corrupt that God judged them and gave them into the hands of Assyria and Babylon to rule over them and drive them into exile. So David's deliverance from death and the establishment of his throne kind of starts to look like a hollow victory. I mean, it was nice while it lasted, but it was really only a few good years here and there. Was that the point? What about the promises God made in the Davidic covenant? Let me read them, some of them. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
Did that ever come true? What about David's confidence he would be delivered from death? He died eventually. Are all of God's promises to David just an inspirational period of history that finally has to come to an end? Well, we know the answer is found in David's son. Not Solomon, but Jesus. This is the way the New Testament teaches us to interpret the promises made to David. Peter explains in his famous sermon in Acts 2, David is a prophet who foretells what will happen to one of his descendants who will be seated on his throne. That is our template for understanding all of Scripture, all of the Old Testament, and Psalm 13. Don't be content with looking for inspiring examples from the life of David. Look for their fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. So what do we see in Psalm 13 that points us to Christ? Well, we see the son of David who cries out to God in his darkest hour. And here's what? Silence. You see the similarity to Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? That's Jesus on the cross. The cry of David is a prophetic foreshadowing of those hours on the cross when the father hid his face from his son. Does that mean God didn't answer Jesus? Well, Hebrews 5, 7 tells us, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Hmm, loud cries and tears. You keep that in your mind, and it's, it's easy to imagine Jesus using these words of David. Look, answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Did God deliver Jesus from death? Yes. After he waited. After he endured. God answered him by raising him from the dead. When it looked as if his enemies had prevailed, his foes were rejoicing because he was dead and gone, God said, no, the victory belongs to my righteous servant. He has trusted in my steadfast love and his heart will rejoice in my salvation. The lament of Psalm 13 eventually becomes the song of triumph of Psalm 21. Let me read that. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips, for you meet him with rich blessings. Sounds like God dealing bountifully with David, right? You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. What about those enemies? who oppose him, God's rule. 
Well, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. You see the relationship between those two psalms? Psalm 13 is the way things look in Gethsemane. Psalm 21 is the way it looks at the ascension. Psalm 13 and all the psalms give us much more than just an inspiring example of faith. It's not just, well, David trusted God and so I should be like David. Because the psalms are giving us a prophetic picture of Christ's life and death and resurrection, they are showing us why we can trust in God. Ultimately, the reason we can trust God to fulfill his promises to us is because he has fulfilled his promise to his son. This morning, you may feel that you are calling to God from a very dark place. You may feel that he is silent or absent. You may be asking how long your time of grief or doubt is going to last. But what you need is not another pep talk. It's not your coach to say, fire you up by saying, yeah, you can do this. What you need, what all of us need, is to cultivate the practice of looking to God's promises fulfilled in Jesus, his son. He is the one who suffered God's absence for you, who tasted death and defeat and disgrace for you, who was raised to life and victory and joy for you. Let's praise him in prayer and in song. Would you join me in prayer, please? There are times when you call your children to walk through seasons of darkness. There are times when we feel you have hidden your face from us. We have times of doubt and fear when we are tempted to question your greatness, your goodness, and your faithfulness. We have so many questions without answers, and we find ourselves crying out, how long? But this morning we confess together, though you may not give us all the answers that we want, You have given us the one answer that we need. By sending your son into the world, you have torn open the heavens and revealed your face to us. Because he was forsaken for us, we know that we are not forsaken or forgotten, but have been made objects of your eternal saving love. We ask you, Lord, to help us walk in light of that love. 
Help us to walk by faith in whatever darkness you may send our way. Help us to trust in the victory of the Lord Jesus, which you accomplished by raising him from the dead, seating him at your right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. We ask you this morning for your grace upon those who are facing times of great difficulty. For those who are suffering illness and long-term health issues. For those who are experiencing financial hardship and uncertainty about their future. For those who are going through the hurt or estrangement of relationships that have been wounded or broken. Lord, we especially ask you for those who may be doubting or questioning you, your goodness and faithfulness to them. Would you cause the light of your face to shine upon them through the work of your spirit, revealing the work of Christ? Lord, this is our great need this morning. Would you meet that need as you have promised? For the sake of your Son, Lord Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.